Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Petra Destova, a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. And I'm talking today to Chris Chaplin, who is an assistant professorial research fellow at the Religion and Global Society Research Unit at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and a visiting fellow at the Department of Political and Social Change at the Coral Bell School of Asian Pacific Affairs at Australian National University. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Chris's research straddles between the fields of anthropology, sociology and politics and is particularly focused on exploring the convergence between global Islamic doctrines and local understandings of faith and how these come to inform civic values, concepts of religious and political belonging and social activism in Southeast Asia. But what we are going to be discussing today is Chris's new book titled Salafism and the State, Islamic Activism and National Identity in Contemporary Indonesia that's been published by our own NIAS Press. So first of all, Chris, congratulations on the publication of your new book. I am aware that there is going to be a release event on the 23rd of September, so that's in a few days. For those of you interested in going and actually seeing Chris and listening to Chris presenting more on this book, I would really encourage you to check out the podcast description details. We will put a link there to the event so you can register. This is a really fascinating book and I have to say that it is a very readable book which is really nice when it obviously comes to academic books but I'm really interested to know how did you become fascinated by this topic of Salafism in Indonesia because as you describe in the book Indonesia is the majority Muslim country but the sense that I got from reading the book, it seems that Salafism in some ways, it's a small percentage of uh, Indonesians who are actually following this particular strand of Sunni Islam. So how did you even learn about it and how did you become interested? Right, that's a fantastic question to kick off with. And I, I suppose where I became interested in Salafism was really, it was, it was a topic almost born out of praxis of just being in Indonesia in the mid to late 2000s when post-authoritarian regime of Sahata, where you saw great democratic debates within the public sphere, but also debates on what it meant to be Indonesian. This kind of pulled in different directions in terms of human rights, access to social care, land rights, indigenous rights, but also religious identity. And this also formed into debates about where Islam and religion in general fit in Indonesia's character and how it related to issues of morality, education, uh, and so forth. Uh, so it was a very vibrant time, but it was also a time that you increasingly saw this more visible expression of Islam within the public sphere and this greater concern with religious clothing religious commodities, but also aspects of morality within the public sphere. And part of this was the emergence of what we call new transnational, translocal Islamic movements and the creation of new doctrines. So, for example, you saw the Muslim Brotherhood influence politics through the Justice and Welfare Party, but also the creation of new Salafi enclaves, as well as other groups such as Hizbut Tahrir, who became quite popular on university campuses. 
Now, at the same time that this was going on in Indonesia and I was there, we're talking at that post 9-11 dynamic where within global politics, we talked a lot about Salafism, transnational Islam, and particularly what you're seeing emerging out of the Middle East into countries like Indonesia um, and across Southeast Asia. And within, when we talk about Salafism, you really saw this more political dynamic with groups such as Laskar Jihad, uh, which was a Salafi-inspired militia that went to fight in eastern Indonesia during the early 2000s, which really caught the imagination in Indonesians of the world at the time. But when you saw all of this happening, one of the big questions are, well, who was joining these movements? Because they were growing. But also, what did it actually mean to be part of these movements? And this somewhat inspired where I wanted to come from. We, we know it from a political standpoint. We can see political consequences. But why is it popular? What does it mean in to Salafism to grow in democratic spaces and can this transform movements? And that was really kind of the questions that drove my, my book and my study going forward. Yeah, it's it sounds very fascinating. And especially the period that you described must have been a really exciting time to, to be in Indonesia and observe this authoritarian era being over, Indonesia becoming much more open and democratizing and observe also these shifts within the religion. But before we go a little bit deeper and talk about your book and Salafism, I just want to ask you about the role of Islam and maybe its importance to Indonesia's identity. Obviously, we know that Indonesia is the the largest Muslim majority country in the world, but how important is religion to your ordinary or average Indonesian? And where does this recent revival of some of these other strands like Salafism, which in your book you describe as a quite a conservative turn, where does that come into it? Right. So yes, Indonesia is an incredibly, in comparative terms, religious country. It's the largest Muslim country in the world, but it also has very large Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, and more Javanese or indigenous belief systems prevalent within the society too. Uh, and this creates this interesting dichotomy as well. So when we talk about religion in Indonesia, I mean, we're talking on two different levels. First of all, we're talking about faith with individuals, where you can see more esoteric, but also uh, more localized, syncretic practices really emerge, um, which aren't easy to combine within the remits of an official religion. There's a lot of anthropologists, for example, that do talk about Javanese practices um, and rituals as well, and how these somewhat overlap or sometimes don't necessarily fit with Islam or Christianity and so forth. But at the same time, when we talk about religion, we're talking about it as a more institutional concept and a political concept. So Indonesian recognizes six uh, religions, including Islam, Christianity, Catholicism, Hinduism, Mm -hmm. Confucianism, Buddhism. And within each one of these, you you have a certain amount of institutional space to represent these religions officially. But how these tie into the broader idea of being Indonesian, it's quite an important topic too, uh, because everyone essentially does nowadays have an officially recognized religion of some sort. To not have a religion is somewhat controversial due to the past with kind of communism. But if we're talking as well about Islam and the prominence of the largest religion, we have to really go back to the history of Indonesia being formed as a modern nation state, if mm-hmm. not before that, where you saw a lot of new Islamic organizations emerge during the early 20th century, not only to represent the wills of the Muslim community, but also to provide social welfare, create new forms of religious authority um, and representation. Um, and this really fitted into the 
budding nationalist project that you saw at the time as well. But it was only one of several different strands. So you also had more nationalist orientated groups, such as Sukarno's uh, Nationalist Party of Indonesia, as well as more socialist slash communist elements too. And really when Indonesia emerged as a new modern nation state, uh, the there was an uneasy existence between these different strands that you saw in the initial years of parliament where they fought a bit and seeing how to represent Indonesia and what aspects would really be an inherent part of Indonesian identity. Now, so at the time, the president found a way in an uneasy compromise by trying to fit them all together. But really what you saw later on in the 1960s to the 1980s was his successor, Suharto, really promote this conservative indigenous ideology, what it meant to be mm -hmm. Indonesia, that got rid of communism, but also somewhat tried to control or relegate the role of Islam within the political sphere. And this is really where, when we talk about more quote-unquote conservative groups coming through, this really started to emerge during the 70s and 80s as a, not necessarily a resistance, but an anti-Suharto-esque new movement within the university campuses in particular. Now, it, it, there is a global dynamic to this because this is also where you saw this emerge throughout a lot of the Muslim world. You saw new ideas linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, Salafism and so forth. And these really influenced Indonesia through a form of um, Islamic politicians who were able to create new forms of learning, provide scholarships to study. And by the 1980s, this formed a new public awareness within certain circles. So you saw the greater use of Islamic clothing, the creation of new Islamic magazines. And by the end of Suharto's reign, you saw him increasingly adopt these Islamic motifs himself as a way mm -hmm. to try and keep himself in power. Um, so this is where this revivalism actually came from. And in the democratic form, it came into its own using greater public spaces to really talk about where Indonesia's identity and religion is somewhat fit. Now, in more recent years, we've seen the growth of conservative movements create this polarized image that on one side you have nationalists or pluralist nationalists, and on the other side you have Islamists. Um, now, in a sense, there is this polarization, but they're, they're far more nuanced uh, because they're, they're all essentially nationalist to a certain extent, but it's just the idea of where Islam and religion should necessarily fit within the state. Should it be one that um, is pluralist, where everyone is equal and inherent in the fact that they are all Indonesians, or should it be one where you have different majoritarian kind of aspects to it? So Muslims should, for example, have greater access to political offices, and it should be an important part of their political and national identity. It's very interesting what you're saying, and I liked in your book how you juxtaposed the conservative revival within Islam with opening up of Indonesia and these democratic spaces that it actually went hand in hand because it allowed these movements to go and use the public space, as you mentioned. So it's, it seems paradoxical, but when you think about it, it really makes sense because it was something that allowed them to come out and try to, to mobilise and get more supporters um, on board as well. Although I'm no Indonesia specialist by any stretch of an imagination, I do actually remember, as you said, this, this discussion that's very binary about Indonesia of having a very conservative Islamism and then more of those nationalist movements and these being two separate groups. And obviously with the Ahok case, the blasphemy case, you, you do get that sense that Indonesia is split somewhere in the middle. But I do like that yeah. you are saying that there is actually a lot more complexity and a lot more nuance to these movements. Another thing that really struck me when I um, was reading through sections of your book was that Salafism, as you say, is, is a more conservative form of Islam. Now, Indonesia has been opening up, so you 
would you would expect that maybe some of these conservative values wouldn't particularly resonate with younger generation, but it seems to be actually the younger generations and the younger Muslims who seem to be particularly attracted to this. And I remember in your book, you opened it with a nice anecdote. You were saying that there was a gathering that you attended. It was a Salafi gathering. When you looked around, most of these Muslims were quite young. So how does it work? Why is it particularly attractive maybe to the younger generations? No, it's a great question. And I think my own ethnographic study perhaps prioritized the younger generations just purely because it was in Jogjakarta, which is a university city in Indonesia. And by nature, I spent a lot of time with younger 20 to 30 year old Salafi converts that were quite active, not only on university campuses, but more broadly in social welfare around that area. So in that sense, maybe perhaps what I was seeing was a bit context specific, but it does tie to broader literature that we see. And when we look at that, I mean, I suppose some of the paradigms that we use to talk about why Salafism and other like movements are becoming more popular, particularly among the youth, we look at aspects of identity politics, political affiliations, individuals moving or emigrating to cities or university campuses, uh, but also the use of new technology, the fact that preachers are more established, older preachers find it difficult to relate to the youth, uh, so forth. And there's an incredibly rich study that looks at these things. And this all, when we look at Salafism, like ties in because these are all relevant aspects of it, but they also talk to why it can provide a moral certainty for these individuals when they move to these places and why it might appeal. But I think there's two aspects I, I really find interesting to pull out and add to why we might see it as popular within the youth, specifically with Salafism as well. And the first one is, comparatively speaking, Salafism is actually quite egalitarian and communal in nature. So while it is incredibly strict in in the sense that it wants to be as literal as possible, Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to debating what this strictness means in society and how you should spread it, it's actually quite communal. The emphasis and the onus is on... um, your study group, but also on yourself. So preachers themselves are quite accessible. You can talk about different aspects, even the anxieties you might have about trying to be Salafi in a non-Salafi type of world. One example, one anecdote example from my fieldwork with this is one individual who struggled because when he went home, his father told him to shave off his beard, which is obligatory for most Salafi men, but his father saw it as somewhat too conservative, too extreme. Now, in order to rectify exactly how he could remain pious or identified as pious, but yet kind of respect his parents, it he went to scripture, but he also went to his immediate colleagues and debated the point out where they talked about the fact that, well, actually, yes, you need to respect your parents. So perhaps not having a beard is permissible in this sense until you can convince your father otherwise. So we can see that there's this communalistic nature to mm-hmm. it, which does make it appealing. And to add that as well, individuals themselves are quite adept at using modern technology um, to promote the movement through radio, through new kind of apps that you can download on your phone, online learning and so forth. And this ties into the second aspect, which I think is why it's important. And that's the fact that it's quite decentralized in the way that Salafism works. There isn't one organization that promotes Salafism. It's quite franchised out in a certain way, which means that when individuals begin to propagate with or promote it in a certain environment, they're relatively free to a certain extent of how they do so and how they make it appeal to other individuals. So why it's popular with youth on university campuses is because they, they begin to promote it as something that is not only enriches yourself in a more 
uh, religious way, but enriches you in terms of your spiritual, but also your professional growth. So, so it can help you with memorizing for study. It can help you in sharpening your mind to engage in businesses, engage in philanthropy, social welfare. It can give you opportunities to do this. So we see it tie itself into the broader idea of a modern, forward-looking, and essentially middle-class professional Indonesian. And this is why you saw it appeal to university students within Job Jakarta. So would you then say that it has this cosmopolitan identity or reflect some kind of cosmopolitan identity? Yes, with a caveat that what I saw was only one part of a very fragmented mm-hmm. movement. So there are rural Salafi groups and they all contest each other a bit. But yes, there is definitely a cosmopolitan element of it, particularly based within science faculties within universities. Mm. That's quite interesting. Is there any particular reason why science faculties? I think there's a combination of reasons. Firstly, there is a awareness in Salafism or a caution, I suppose, or towards what they see as human sciences or anything mm-hmm. that puts the human at the center of study rather than God, which was always controversial if you're trying to do an ethnography of a group, and you're coming from a field that they themselves see as quite wary or quite anthema to what they believe. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that predominantly in, in Islamic universities in Indonesia, you see students that are very much engaged with Islam from predominantly a young age and on a very intellectual basis and come from Indonesia's more established religious organizations. Mm. A Salafi struggle here, mainly because where they do find inroads is generally within individuals that are Muslim, but usually come from less religious or pious backgrounds themselves and are somewhat becoming interested in it while they're on university campuses. Mm That makes sense. And I do remember you mentioning something similar in your book with some of the older members or the first wave of activists who who were not necessarily too religious to start with, but then converted and adopted this more conservative form. So that leads me nicely to a question. How different is Salafism from, let's say, a more mainstream Sunni Islam? Because... uh, Again, I, I come back to that point in your book, and I was quite surprised by that. When you say that the, the percentage of Salafis is actually not as high when you compare it to the, the entire population of Indonesia. I mean, it's a massive country, that's one thing, but still, it's, it's a relatively small percentage. Yeah. So Salafis them, themselves believe that they're following the purest form of Sunni yeah. Islam through a rigorous study of the Hadith and the Sunnah, so the ways and the sayings and the deeds of the Prophet Muhammad and his companions, as well as through studying. And they believe by doing so, they're emulating the first three generations of Muslims, uh, mm-hmm. the Sahaba, the Tabi'un, or the Tabi al-Tabi'in, who all lived during the reign of the first four caliphs. Now, in fact, the term Salafi itself derives from as-Salaf, which refers to the Muslims that preceded you. Now, in doing this and the and their aim in emulating uh, the Prophet Muhammad and the original generations of Muslims, they're not necessarily being unique to Sunni Islam in this sense. And in fact, there have been many other groups that claim to be doing the same throughout Islamic history as well as in contemporary society. And this includes the Al-Hadith that you saw in the Abbasid mm-hmm. Caliphate, but it also includes kind of groups on Indi- pretty much every Islamic group that you see across Indonesia at the time that believe they're following the original history of Islam. This contemporary Salafism emerged during the 1960s and 70s. And it, and it was a way of looking beyond the traditional schools of jurisprudence that you see in Islam um, and scrutinizing Hadith through the concepts of what's called Katrikan evaluation, developed in particular by one 
one Islamic scholar called Muhammad al-Albani, who taught in the University of Medina during the 1960s. So that points to this contemporary history and also the fact that it's a modern movement, despite the fact that they themselves believe that they're following an ancient lineage here. But also the fact that, as I just referred, al-Albani was teaching within Saudi Arabia. It's often why when we talk about Salafism, people point to the similarities with, say, Wahhabism. Now, it does indeed um, hold certain similarities to Wahhabism in terms of their social conservative values that they form, but it does also differ in terms of jurisprudence. Um, and actually, if we look at the history of Wahhabism and Salafism in Saudi Arabia, we can actually see a fair bit of antagonism, especially from Wahhabi scholars themselves who mm-hmm. saw the Salafis as somewhat upstarts. Um, but if we refer to Indonesia and where Salafism comes into it, we can see that it differs predominantly from more mainstream Sunni Islamic organizations, particularly those such as Natatul Ulama, mainly because it doesn't follow the same school of jurisprudence. In fact, it doesn't follow a school of jurisprudence, whereas Natatul Ulama follow the Shafi school. But also you see kind of fundamental difference in kind of creed and the way that scholars are revered, but also the way that it mixes with syncretic practices. Now, for example, within Natatul Ulama, the celebration of Prophet Muhammad's birthday is seen as an important day, whereas for Salafis, this is seen as somewhat un-Islamic because it contravenes the oneness of God because essentially you're celebrating the Prophet's birthday. Uh, So you see these kind of differences in practices and this kind of rigorness comes through. And this is where some of the controversies come out too in terms of how Salafis dress, how they look and why they're different from other individuals. Could you maybe just describe very briefly how they look? Because some of our listeners might not be familiar with that. And you already hinted at the beard being the symbol. But are there any other things that if we, let's say, went to Indonesia, walk on the streets, would we be able to say this is Salafi follower, for example? Sure. So by trying to emulate the Prophet in the first three generations of Muslims themselves, what you see is Salafi dress in very particular ways. When we talk about the way that Salafi men dress, they'll usually have a beard, they usually wear robes or long religious trousers that never fall below the ankle, while as women usually will wear the niqab, uh, the full veil, depending on which Salafi faction or fraction they're from, they, they might wear the full face veil or they might not. This differs from... Uh, more established or traditional Islamic clothing that you see in Indonesia, which can include the songkok, the black um, hat that men wear, as well as uh, sarongs, which are quite common around mosques, as well as within women not wearing necessarily the whole face veil, but wearing more jilbabs or kind of headscarf. So there is this difference that you see within the way that they dress. Now, adding to that, there's they enforce strict gender segregation, which again, in Indonesian society is not something that you necessarily see within schools, university or public spaces. I wonder how is this rise in more conservative forms of Islam, such as Salafism, affecting contemporary Indonesian identity or the developments thereof, and the state of democracy in the country? Because as we discussed, democracy was the enabling force in many ways, but is there now a bit of retraction or is it causing some kind of problems for the development of Indonesian democracy? Well, the journey of Salafism across Indonesian democracy is fascinating. It's one that's waxed, waned, and ebbed and flowed in terms of how it interacts with public institutions and how it conceives of the state. And I I find this fascinating when we look at it as, as a movement itself. So despite the fact that Salafism or Salafi beliefs see democracy as somewhat a man-made form of government and therefore it somewhat contravenes the idea that uh, God should be at the center of governance, Indonesian democracy has, if 
we're going to be completely honest, been quite beneficial to the Salaf movement in the sense that it gives it the space to engage with society openly, as well as participate in public debates. So if we compare perhaps to what happened previously under Suharto, where Salafi organizations grew, but they grew quite privately, quite secretly, and in quite limited spaces, now they're able to publish magazines, they're able to take to the radio waves, even to TV nowadays, as well as to the internet. And they have, in this sense, con contributed to a very lively Islamic debate, but also one about where Islam should fit within 21st century of Indonesia. Now, there are adverse effects of this, and we are seeing that across Indonesian society, specifically when we talk about Islamic minority groups in Indonesia, mm -hmm. for example, the Shia or the Ahmadiyya, both of which the Salafis have targeted within their doctrine and their writings as groups that are anthema to what they see as proper Islamic beliefs. Now, it's quite important to stress that Salafis are not the only ones that have targeted these groups. And in fact, Salafis themselves, they rarely will go out and target these groups through violence um, mm -hmm. or anything, while other groups may, may do so. But they nevertheless contribute to the narrowing of the public spaces for these kind of religious minorities. But we can see also that democracy perhaps plays a far more existential role within the way that Salafis look at themselves and engage with politics. Because while they're quite quietest in the sense that they, they're reluctant to take to the streets or form political parties, they're not apolitical in mm. the way that the way they dress, the way they promote these values, and the way they believe that these need to inform contemporary identity within Indonesian society. And this really ties into the growing promotion of what is seen as a Muslim majoritarian view of Indonesian identity, where Islamic mores, Islamic dress, and even just being a pious Muslim should be front and center to what it means to be Indonesia and to be able to engage in public and therefore political spaces. And we saw this perhaps around 2016 and 2017 in the protests that you mentioned previously with Ahok or Bazuki Cahaya Ponama, who was running for governor of Jakarta, Ahok himself was a Christian of ethnic Chinese origin. So you saw this rallying cry of having a Muslim governor that mm. Salafis themselves not generally supported, even though I'd say the majority of them were reluctant to take to the streets, but they nevertheless supported the idea that governors should, uh, and therefore politicians, should be Muslim in themselves. Yes, indeed. I think we have time for one more question. What was your experience of, of researching, writing and publishing this book? It was definitely a fascinating experience. But when we're talking about gaining access, it was definitely a very incremental process, one that took quite a while. And part of this is because Salafis, by their very nature, were quite isolated in themselves um, right. and try their best not to engage. There's also a suspicion when it comes to researchers that they themselves were quite quick to point out. And that is the fact that a lot of research paints Salafism as violent. It talked about the political manifestations and so forth. So there was an element of distrust there. However, through engaging with different Salafis slowly, especially through Salafi schools and student unions, incrementally, I was able to attend lectures with them. As I began to engage with these groups, we started to build up rapport. I mean, while there was a certain amount of difference in where I was coming from, being a European white male that's non-Muslim, there was also an element of commonality that we started to 
to see, and that was through the academic institutions that we were part of in themselves at the time, and the fact that we'd all somewhat studied in, in universities and, and saw that as important. And from that as well, as I started to engage and they started to allow me to attend first their lectures and then engage more thoroughly with them, I was also able to see that there was certain justifications at play here too. For example, there's an Islamic concept of hidayah, and that's God-given guidance, the idea that God will lead you to Islam in the end. And while I saw my engagement as purely academic, there is a secondary element that the more that he learns, perhaps he will become Muslim. Um, so we saw that we were negotiating each other's presence as we went. And, and yeah, and over time, this has developed. Uh, I'm happy to say I'm still in contact with quite a few individuals. And as Indonesian democracy has moved on or progressed as well, it's led me to go back, talk to individuals uh, and gain a sense of what this has meant itself for kind of Salafis on the ground. So it's been a very interesting uh, and thoroughly enriching experience, if I was to sum it up. Having spent so much time in the field and having really got quite close in terms of your interactions with some of these participants, was it then difficult when it came to writing up to maintain some distance between that immersive experience that you had in the field and then being able to take a step back and think about it from a position of a research? For sure. And I think this is something that all kind of ethnographers or uh, social scientists struggle with as well, of just finding that space. And I suppose when we're talking about Salafism as well, one of the extra challenges here is the fact that the belief systems of me as a researcher and them as my interlocutors don't necessarily always align. So writing about issues that sometimes could feel somewhat controversial at points and trying to give them truth and trying to give agency to those on the ground while maintaining distance and a certain element of being able to say exactly what's happening in cases of, for example, religious minorities, was in itself difficult and challenging. I tried to engage in, I'd say, you call it a methodological agnostic way with these issues, but, but again, this does take time, especially as topics emerge and the situation on the ground changes itself. Indeed, but I think it's a highly readable book and a fascinating account of contemporary Indonesia and uh, Islam's role in it. I'm afraid we have to stop the podcast here, but I'm sure that many of our listeners will be interested to hear more. So just for that, I will repeat that there is a book launch event organised by the University of Edinburgh on the 23rd of September. So for those of you interested, check out the podcast description details and you will be able to get a link to register for this particular event. So thank you very much for coming and joining this podcast and presenting your research and sharing with us your experience of writing this fascinating book. It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Petra Desotova, postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking today to Chris Chaplin, Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at the Religion and Global Society Research Unit at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.